Good morning again. Let's turn to uh, the first chapter of Titus, and we want to pick up at verse 8. And we will, in these uh, verses 8 and 9, uh, wrap up the qualifications for elders. We're told that the individual was to be a lover of hospitality, or given to hospitality. Look at Romans, the 12th chapter with me, please. Romans 12 and verse 13. Romans 12, 13. Distributing to the necessity of saints, given to hospitality. The believers would have traveled from place to place at this time, and of course there were hardships along the way and always the chance uh, for robbers uh, and others to uh, to take advantage of them and so it was common to resort to houses of fellow believers very much like what we do today uh, and in their case it was more for uh, safety to avoid these idolaters and these uh, evils of, of the public ends look at First Peter with me also 1 Peter 4 and verse 9. Use hospitality one to another without grudging, without complaining. So, uh, once again, a critical element of being an elder was to be a lover of hospitality. Also, we learn in verse 8 that these individuals were to be lovers of good men. And a better translation of that is a lover of good things. The Greek is philagathos, love we see in the filio part. Agathos actually has uh, reference to that which is beneficial in its effects. Beneficial in its effects. Please turn with me to Philippians, Philippians the fourth chapter in verse 8. Philippians 4 and verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. So indeed, these are good things. Let's go to Proverbs, the 11th chapter, and verse 27. He that diligently seeketh good, procureth favor, and he that seeketh mischief, it shall come unto him. So we should be seeking those good things, the things of the Spirit. The elder is to be sober or sober-minded, following sound reason, being rational in their thinking. Self-control, discreet, one who acts out of reason. He is likewise to be just, fair-minded, a respect for his fellow men, doing things that are in accordance with that which is right, or doing the right thing. He is to be holy. And Bollinger defines this as one who religiously, who religiously observes every duty and fulfills every obligation. Consecrated, 
set apart for God's purpose. It expresses that which is righteous and speaks of the principles of the word that should be seen in our daily lives. Temperance is also a requirement. Being a master of one's own self, having self-control, and we know that it is a fruit of the Spirit that's listed in Galatians 5, verse 23. We need to exercise power over ourselves. We must hold fast to the faithful word, to cleave to that faithful word which produces faithfulness. It produces faithfulness. Understanding truth, we must grasp it as an anchor of the soul. Look at Second Thessalonians with me, if you would, please. Second Thessalonians, the second chapter, in verses 13 to 15. But we are bound to give thanks always to God for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God hath from the beginning chosen you to salvation through sanctification of the Spirit and belief of the truth. Whereunto he called you by our gospel to the attaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Hold fast the traditions of the word. Unfortunately, the Judaizing elements uh, and the unbelieving Christians were also holding to tradition, particularly those of the circumcision of the Judaizers, but it was vain tradition. It was those rituals and those practices and traditions that they had developed rather than those that were characteristic of the Word of God. The grasp, a grasp, of the Word will serve to exhort to sound doctrine and to convince the gainsayers or those who were contradictors. A real contrast to the vain talkers and deceivers that we will uh, discuss in verse 10. And this individual, this elder, is to do this as he hath been taught. And the revised renders this as according to the teaching. And the word is directly from the apostles' teaching from Christ. The elder was to deliver it without addition or without subtraction. And once again, this was a real contrast in the ecclesias to what was being done by the Gnostic uh, influence and element. They were looking for new things, for indeed, uh, their hearers had itching ears. And once again, we can apply this to our setting today. Is this happening to us? Is this happening within the household today? That he may be able both to exhort in the sound doctrine and to convict the gainsayers. This word able here in this context is uh, a word that means powerful or capable. And they were to exhort, which we know means to comfort, to console, in some cases to upgrade and get uh, individuals back on the right track. Rotterham renders this as to encourage in the things of truth. And here again we see this phrase, in the sound doctrine. Remember this word sound comes from the Greek hygiano, which is to be healthy or to be pure, to be hygienic, if you will. And it's used metaphorically in this context of, of doctrine. It's 
Let's go to 1 Timothy, the 6th chapter. 1 Timothy 6, and verses 3 through 5. If any man teach otherwise, and consent not to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is according to godliness, or doctrine that is practiced, that is put into action, he is proud, knowing nothing, but doting about questions and strifes of words, whereof cometh envy, strife, railings, evil surmisings, perverse disputings of men, of corrupt minds, and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. Now, indeed, this was the condition uh, in the Ecclesias in Crete, was that they were focused on personal gain and not godliness. Let's go to the second chapter of Second uh, Timothy in the second verse. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Going back to our text here, we have the phrase that he may be able both to exhort in the sound doctrine and to convict the gainsayers. And you'll find in other translations that this is better rendered as, as he will be able to comfort and encourage the believers. But indeed, Titus, for example, uh, as an elder in Crete, was having to contend earnestly for the faith uh, and with these individuals. We must strive within the ecclesia, as Paul had instructed Timothy, to maintain a healthy condition. We must teach those things that are according to truth. And we must impute those who attack those truths. Where there is a lack of sound doctrine and no exhortation, the ecclesia, we know, will ultimately die. And unfortunately, we've seen that happen in some areas. Isn't it interesting that Paul ends this qualification, uh, this list of qualifications with this very critical one of maintaining sound doctrine. And we know that doctrine, as we started out talking about this morning, doctrine and walk must go hand in hand. They are inseparable. One is not more significant than the other if we are to please God. Look at the contrast between Titus and Cretans. Titus was moved by the power of the truth. And this is a glaring contrast to the Cretans who were always liars. Titus was diligent and energetic, as an elder should be. The Cretans, on the other hand, were idle, lazy gluttons. Titus was resourceful. The Cretans, mischievous, wild beasts. Titus, enthusiastic dedicated to the things of the Spirit. And the Cretans, on the other hand, were obstinate and lazy. Titus, very much in control. Uh, we know that, indeed, Titus was no shrinking violet when he came to defending the things of the truth. We know the Apostle Paul sent him to Corinth, uh, where he exercised a great deal of sympathy and compassion, and yet was very bold in his message to the Corinthians. And so it's appropriate that Titus be selected for this role in Crete. Uh, he was a Gentile, as he was half Jewish, and, uh, and therefore 
with some of the things that they were dealing with, it's very appropriate that he was selected by Paul to carry out this work. They, the Cretans, very quick-tempered. Uh, Titus, kind and warmly affectionate. Whereas the Cretans, on the other hand, were hateful and hating uh, others. Titus, very disciplined and organized. The Cretans were characterized by riotous insubordination. Titus taught out of concern. The Cretans, what was their motivation? Only gain, base gain. Titus, very sympathetic and helpful to his brethren, whereas the Cretans overthrew whole houses, leading them astray for gain. Titus was zealous of good works. The Cretans, on the other hand, were found worthless. Titus's character was one that was adorned, uh, that adorned the truth. The Cretans caused the truth to be blasphemed. And we can apply these directly to ourselves as servants of the deity. Are we like Titus, or are we like the Cretans? Titus spoke according to sound doctrine, whereas the Cretans were giving heed to, to the Jewish legends. Titus was sober, sober-minded, whereas the Cretans were given to intoxication literally and spiritually. Titus was above reproach. The Cretans in need of sharp rebuke. Now, this is a quote that's taken uh, from uh, a work done by the Christadelphian Scripture Study Group. I think it's so reflective of why Titus, Titus was chosen and, um, and how he indeed was the right individual to carry out this work. It was no mistake that the Apostle Paul carefully chose Titus from among all his other fellow laborers to be the bearer of the first letter to the Corinthians. Titus took a stern rebuke to the Corinthians in a manner that caused a godly repentance from them. Titus did not flinch at the task, but was forward in his zeal to do it, so much so that the Corinthians received him with trepidation. Titus not only rebuked them, but also provided the necessary balm of sympathetic enthusiasm and encouragement. And we see the, the disposition of Titus was one of uh, great caring uh, and compassion for his brethren. Titus was more than equal to the task, and the apostle declares that he and Titus were motivated by the same spirit towards the Corinthians. He was therefore not only able to humble them, but also able to elevate them to the positive work of the truth. The enthusiasm of Titus was catching, and he spread a zeal like that of the apostle. The experience of Titus both at Antioch and more particularly at Corinth had fitted Titus for the handling of the Christian situation. Indeed, he was well prepared for his task. Let's uh, go back to Titus now and let's pick up at verse 10. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers especially they of the circumcision. They were, that is, the Christians were lazy, as we've said. They were idle. They wouldn't work. And this uh, idleness contributed to uh, the fact that they were uh, amenable to and accepting of the instruction of the Judaizing element. It was a free spirit, if you will, that characterized the Cretans 
that didn't foster godliness. Let's look at James, the uh, third chapter. Very familiar chapter to us, relative to the tongue. Here in Crete, we had many unruly and vain talkers. James 3, beginning at verse 5. Even so the tongue is a little member, and boasteth great things. Behold how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity, so is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and setteth on fire the course of nature, and it is set on fire of hell. And we know that indeed this is the case. For every kind of beast and of birds and of serpents and of things in the sea is tamed, and hath been tamed of mankind. But the tongue can no man tame. It is an unruly evil, full of deadly poison. So often, if things could just be left unsaid, how much better the conditions would be. They were deceivers in Crete. They literally had the mind of a deceiver and were able to lead others astray. Bollinger says that uh, the correct rendering, or a good rendering here, is deceivers of men's minds. And indeed, that's what they were doing. Let's look at Ephesians, the fifth chapter, verse 6. Notice the instruction of the apostle here. Let no man deceive you with vain words, for because of these things cometh the wrath of God upon the children of disobedience. We have to be careful that we are not leading others away from the truth or are being led away from truth. Look at Isaiah with me, please, the 8th chapter. And it necessitates a constant analysis, if you will, on our part as to where do we stand in relation to our service to the Heavenly Father. Are we deceiving others or perhaps even deceiving ourselves? Look at Isaiah 8 and verse 20. To the law and to the testimony, if they speak not according to this word, it is because there is no life in them. There is no understanding in them. He mentions they uh, of the circumcision here, and of course this refers to Judaizers. They had uh, come over uh, and had accepted Christ and embraced the truth, but had over time certainly begun to introduce uh, aspects of Judaism such as circumcision. And they were perhaps the main source of conflict or trouble within the Ecclesian, within the Ecclesian Ecclesians. Uh, they taught that these rituals were indeed essential and you know we can fall into this same habit today that because our Ecclesia has always done it this way that tradition is absolutely correct and supported by the Word of God, when indeed it may not be. But we need to be careful about the traditions and the rituals that, that we establish. Does it readily exclude individuals where it shouldn't? And yet, at the same time, we must maintain sound doctrine and be consistent in our worship of Yahweh. Let's go back to uh, Titus 1 and uh, let's look at Verse 11, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Whose mouths must be stopped. 
another way to uh, to define this word stop is the word bridled. They must be bridled or muzzled. Now turn with me to Romans, if you will, to, to the third chapter of Romans. Romans 3 and verse 19. Note Paul's words here. Romans 3 and 19. Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. That every mouth may be bridled or muzzled in relation to these things. And this word um, stop here also implies a responsibility that Titus had certainly to stop these conditions within Crete and the Ecclesias in Crete. And there is a message to us as well uh, because we'll see that we are to speak out against these things with the right spirit and the right heart and the right motivation. We were told by Paul here, and he was likewise telling Titus, don't debate. Don't debate the matter. Absolutely silence them in this era. Look at the second chapter of Titus, verse 15. Titus 2.15 These things speak and exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no man despise thee. To rebuke with all authority. These individuals in Crete, this Judaizing element as well as those of the Gnostic heresy, were subverting whole houses, were overthrowing entire families. The Greek here for houses is anatrepo, A-N-A-T-R-E-P-O, and it means to turn up or to turn over. And in essence, what they were doing is they were making a spiritual shambles of these households. They were overthrowing the faith. Let's go to Second Timothy, the second chapter. In verse 18, he's speaking here of Hymenaeus and Philetus, who concerning the truth have erred, saying that the resurrection is past already, and overthrow the faith of some. We, brothers and sisters, should never be guilty of overthrowing the faith of others. And we must be very conscientious in ensuring that we do not allow ourselves to be overthrown or our families to be led astray. We know that these individuals in Crete used deceit, deception. They worked secretly to achieve their goals. And unfortunately, this is what happens so often in an ecclesial setting. It's not those things that are open and outward so often that we're dealing with, but those things that are happening behind the scenes. This term houses uh, here is oikos in the Greek, and it means a family or a household, as we've been alluding to. We know, as we discussed earlier, that the ecclesia, the ecclesia at large, when we talk about the larger household, is the family of God. And each of us, brother and sister alike, have the responsibility to maintain the well-being of the ecclesia, individuals within the ecclesia, and to teach those things which constitute sound doctrine. Because, as we said earlier, if we are right individually, we will be right 
collectively. They were teaching things that ought not to be for filthy lucre's sake, for the sake of base gain. And this is how they were overthrowing entire houses. Let's go to uh, Hebrews, the third chapter. Hebrews 3, and let's pick up at verse 4. It's very clear from this context that, indeed, we constitute the household of God. When we come into covenant relationship, we become the sons and daughters of the deity. And we are certainly heirs, and we are heirs, and in prospect will be constituents of the kingdom of God. Look at, beginning at verse 4. For every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. And Moses verily was faithful in all his house as a servant for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken after. But Christ as a son over his own house, whose house are we, if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. We are very familiar with the definition of faith. Faith is the substance, and we might say the giving of substance, to the things that are hoped for, to the things that we anticipate. And the uh, substance of things hoped for, the evidence or the proof of things that will ultimately come to pass. We know that there will be a literal, literal kingdom upon this earth. We know there will be subjects within that kingdom. We know also that there will be uh, a king, and all this will emanate from uh, Jerusalem, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake, for the sake of base gain. They were greedy. They were avaricious. Uh, it was interesting, one of the writers said that lying and, and greed were native to the soil of Crete. And indeed, uh, that was pretty much, is pretty much uh, the case in this context. Let's go to 1 Timothy 6, verses 5 and 6. We read this a little bit earlier, but think about this. Perverse disputings of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, supposing that gain is godliness, from such withdraw thyself. But godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not in the multitude of our, our material possessions. You know, we're not to be materialists. Our focus must be upon Yahweh. Let's go to 2 Corinthians, the 12th chapter. And once again, we see a, a glaring contrast in the character of Titus and his motivation. 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 18. I desired Titus, and with him I sent a brother. Did Titus make a gain of you? Walk we not in the same spirit? Meaning that Titus walked in the same spirit as Paul. Walk we not in the same steps? And certainly this should be reflective of us as well, brothers and sisters. Verse 12, we're told that one of themselves had these things to say about the Cretans. And this would have been uh, uh, Epimenides, who was in the uh, 6th century B.C. Uh, he says that, you know, basically they were, as we read here, always liars, evil beasts, slow bellies. And uh, evil beasts means that they were embracing every form of evil. 
Uh, and indeed, that was uh, the conditions within Crete. They were engaged in all kinds of uh, evil practices and, uh, and behaviors. Bollinger says that the beasts here refers to beasts of prey, and I think that's appropriate because they were preying upon the unsuspecting and the victims that uh, were in the ecclesias. Slow bellies. Uh, here, uh, the Greek is argos, for bellies. It actually comes from a combination of words. A, which is a negative, and ergon, E-R-G-O-N, which is work. And it's the uh, very word, English word, ergonomics, related to work. But they were not working. They were lazy, they were idle, they were inactive, they were unemployed, if you will. And it was very fertile ground and fruitful ground for these false teachers. And it tells us, and, and of course Christ very specifically addresses this with the parable of the cleaning of the house. And once the house is cleaned, uh, what happens if we do not fill it with the right things? It is very quickly uh, refilled with the evil spirits, and we know uh, having reference to the evil behaviors and, and uh, practices. We must replace those things that we have removed from our minds, those things of the flesh, with things that are spiritual. But these uh, these slow bellies were very uh, engaged in deceit. You know, they were uh, influenced by the deception that they were experiencing, and they were leading others astray themselves. Uh, verse 13, let's go back to Titus, Titus 1, verse 13. This witness is true. Wherefore, rebuke them sharply, that they may be sound in the faith. Rebuke them sharply. You know, Paul knew uh, firsthand that indeed these things were true. He had actually, uh, as we mentioned earlier, visited Crete, leaving uh, Titus there for the work. We know that Paul went on to Nicopolis, and later on Titus actually joined him in Nicopolis after the work was, uh, was begun. This word rebuke means to convince, but it also means to put to shame, to silence, to stop, abruptly or curtly, to put an end to these false teachings. And this was directed at those uh, that were being led astray. Uh, it was designed to impact those that uh, were being influenced by these false teachers, that they may be sound in the faith, or, once again, healthy in the faith. The truth here is, is all-encompassing of the gospel. It mentions being sound in the faith, or sound in the truth. And that is the collective gospel that's being spoken of in this context. Sound teaching is the source, and we've said this many times this morning, and this is really the message throughout the book of Titus. Sound teaching is the source of sound conduct. We cannot separate the two. Faith motivated by works. Not giving heed to Jewish fables and commandments of men that turn from the truth. Let's go to 1 Timothy, the first chapter, in verse 4. And note Paul's instruction here to Timothy. 
Neither give heed to fables and endless genealogies, which minister questions rather than godly edifying, which is in faith, so do. And of course, these endless genealogies, the Judaizers were very much involved in, in this type of thinking. And we do not have these same disputes today, but do we have similar ones that would fall into this category that should be utterly disregarded? Let's go to Titus, the third chapter. Titus 3 and verse 9. Paul says, Avoid foolish questions and genealogies and contentions and strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable and vain. And we know that uh, there are conflicts in the household today, and these are very discouraging conflicts for those that are learning the truth or young in the truth, and, um, and we need to be very cognizant of that. And we should... Uh, that doesn't mean that we do not speak those things that constitute sound doctrine, but we should be very empathetic and concerned about those contentions that are leading people astray. I was uh, sharing with, with uh, Brother Dave at the break that um, Sister Eloise Hethill said to me years ago, I was young in truth and frustrated with some conflicts that we were dealing with occasionally, and I remember her telling me that you're your idols have feet of clay. And it really is true. When we start to put too much confidence in man rather than in God, we have problems. Uh, and so it's important to look for the positives, stay on track with sound doctrine, but be compassionate and understanding as was so beautifully demonstrated and characterized by Titus in Crete. Fables are nothing more than myths. And the results of these kinds of teachings are disastrous. They are the commandments of men so often that are being propagated rather than the commandments of God. Let's go back to Timothy and, and of course these letters to Timothy and Titus are often referred to as the pastoral letters or epistles because there's so much focus on shepherding the flock feeding the flock, and the responsibility that we have as elders in the truth to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and to guide those young in the truth that we might all enter into the kingdom of God. 1 Timothy 6 and verses 20 and 21. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called which some professing have heard concerning the faith. Grace be with you, and with you. Amen. These individuals, as we learn from this 14th verse, were turning men from the truth. They were not only turning others, but they were turning themselves as well from the truth. Let's go to verse 15. Unto the pure all things are pure, but unto them that are defiled and unbelieving is nothing pure but even their mind and conscience is defiled. Even their mind and conscience is defiled. Everything is pure to the pure-minded, but to them you know, who are, as we read here, defiled, and this word defiled means to stain with color, to spot, to be blemished. Let's go to Jude, the eighth verse. We should not be causing, brothers and sisters, these blemishes, these spots. 
nor should we be influenced by those who are. To the pure, all things are pure. Jude, verse 8. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. You know, this is the, the, the contrast of what we're speaking of. Is this our motivation and our disposition? Or is it rather maintaining the pure mind? We're very familiar with the reference to the dog returning to its vomit and the sow washing, who has been washed through her wallowing in the mire. And it is characteristic of human nature to readily do that. And none of us are exempt from it unless we stay close to the Word of God, unless we maintain that sound and healthy doctrine and conduct our lives in conformance to that doctrine, then you know, we will become spiritually unhealthy. Holiness comes from contact with Christ. And the only way we can have that contact is through a study of the doctrines and teachings that he has left on record for our learning, for our use, and through our prayer to the Heavenly Father. Erroneous teaching and moral impurity go hand in hand. Pure teaching, on the other hand, can develop a pure way of life. But we're told here in, in Crete that even their mind and conscience is defiled. We want to manifest rather the attitude and the disposition of David that we read in Psalm 51 to verse 10. He said, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. We read in verse 16 that they profess that they know God, but in works they deny him, being abominable and disobedient, and to every good work reprobate. You often wonder, brothers and sisters, why it's a point of contention uh, concerning faith and works. There really should be no conflict. We know that, indeed, we cannot earn our salvation. Frankly, I've never heard anyone say that we can. We cannot earn our salvation. We are dependent upon the grace of God. But on the other hand, nevertheless, we also must perform the works that the Lord has prescribed. And that doesn't mean by uh, exercising that work or executing that work that we will gain an entrance into the kingdom of God. But each one of us has a standard for us alone. And thank uh, the Lord for that uh, equity and, and that fairness that, that we must achieve in relation to those works and those responsibilities. Uh, and we should be diligent in going about them. Uh, and, and not be concerned about a dispute between faith and works. Yes, we are saved by grace, but we must work in the Lord's vineyard. We read here that they profess that they know God. And this word know is oida in the Greek, which means to know intimately. And indeed, they do not, because they are not close to the teachings of, of the Lord. But in works, they deny Him. Their manner of life contradicts the claim. Their manner of life contradicts the claim. By their fruits, ye shall know them. They were abominable, we're told here, or repulsive. They were disobedient. 
They were obstinate. They were unpersuadable. And these words should never describe us, brothers and sisters. And to every good work, reprobate. And to every good work, reprobate. They were unfit for any good whatsoever. This word reprobate means that they were not standing the test. They had a mind that was clouded by speculations and things contrary to truth. They professed to believe, but they had not been put to the test. They were worthless, and as a result, they will be rejected. In verse 1, Paul says, Only an acknowledging of the truth, or to know accurately, epinosis, can lies be conformed to the standard of godliness. And godliness, as we said, is our conduct in Christ. Sound doctrine and walk, as we said earlier, are inseparable. They go hand in hand. Faith and works are paramount if we are to please our Heavenly Father. For works must indeed be motivated by faith.